0: My guest calling in from Oslo, Norway, Professor Jordan Randers, R-A-N-D-E-R-S. And he is also the author of the uh, 1972 controversial uh, study called Limits of Growth, which utilized systems analysis to predict the state of the world in 2012. We'll be interested to see how accurate that was. And while mostly discredited at that time of the publication, 1972, the book is raising increasing interest. Because of its accuracy, a new analysis look at the uh, the world in 2052, commemorating the 40th anniversary of the original report, has just been published. 2052: A Global Forecast for the Next 40 Years. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you. I'd like to look at the the world through your eyes of what you see coming. But first, just a little extended introduction to the theme, and then take any part of it if you would please and expand on it. All right? Mm-hmm. Because you deal with economics, government, uh, foreign relations, climate change, technology developments, population growth, urbanization, agriculture and resources, and many other areas. So you 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 are on a very broad canvas for us. And I think it's some, for the average person, sometimes the picture is too big and we have to try to find something that we can identify that's a little closer to home. Let me just give one example. Right now, the world has said, isn't it great that the Greeks just passed, um, uh, just had a new election yesterday. And because of that election, now the majority has decided, let's go ahead and pay back the bankers. All the money that they've loaned us, which means that they're going to have to further degrade their country, its infrastructure, um, employment, uh, suffering, and none of that will help Greece bounce back. So on the one hand, we do this time and again throughout the world and have for as long as structural adjustment, the International Monetary Fund and loans have been given, whether the loan is given to Zimbabwe with uh, compounding interest or the loan is given to Venezuela or the loans are given to Greece, uh, it still means that we're not looking at what is the underlying method that a society needs to actually sustain itself into the future. So that's one area I would like for you to address. But beside that area, you look at the major players, India, China, Brazil, the United States, the European Union, led by Germany. Their interest uniformly is, we don't care about nature we deny that global warming is our fault or that it's as big a deal, or if we have to acknowledge it's real, we'll make sure that nothing ever gets done about it if it means any of our corporate sponsors uh, have to pay for uh, damages done or prevention. But then at the same time, they say that the futures for those who are capable of f- keeping that steam engine going fast and furious, 6%, 10%, 12% growth per year. Well, that means the world would have to have two planets in order to exploit all the natural resources. So would you also address, second to the first question, how are we supposed to go into the future with the same paradigms, programs, and ritualistic ways of achieving a certain status of living when the resources are not there to allow that? And lastly, how are we supposed to deal with the environment if we refuse to acknowledge any tipping points that we should move from an earthquake fault, we should move out of the forest. Just imagine those people in New Mexico that's now having the largest forest fires in the state's history. This week, When well, now there's 60 different forest fires going on in the state. We refuse to live, move out of drought states. There's 16 drought states in the United States alone, but there are drought states now in England, the United Kingdom, and other countries. We refuse to do anything at all anywhere in the world as a major nation, individual and individuals certainly are, and individual companies are, but as whole countries, it's on the way back on the back burner. So if we have an environment we're not willing to acknowledge, people who are going to be starving to death we're not willing to acknowledge, people in the United States who are going to bed hungry, 18 million children that we don't acknowledge, 12 million senior citizens in the United States are going to bed hungry each day that we don't acknowledge, why should we think that somehow there's going to be a happy ending to this story? The form is yours. Take your time.
1: (coughs) Well, uh, as a German would have said, that was a grausame salber, which I presume uh, is translated in my bad English, you know, into, wow, what a big canvas. Uh, let me uh, start by trying to make it simple. Uh, I think that... the. The starting point is to accept the fact that the world is very, very small. You know, that one at least drops any dream that the world is a huge place where there is room for lots of people and lots of additional economic activity. So that's a starting point. Then the next point is that it is totally obvious that if one is having problems on a small planet, These problems are associated with excessive use of resources and excessive emission of pollutants of different types. So it's the physical uh, footprint of human activity which is the problem. It is not economic growth per se. If you and I, Gary, started cutting each other's hair, Faster and faster, and each time paying each other 30 bucks for the job. You know, we will add to the economy. The GDP will grow, but and this growth would not cause any physical problem for the planet. Uh, and you and I would pay higher and higher taxes. We would book higher and higher income doing this. So the very, very important point to try to get is the distinction between the economy as measured by the GDP, uh, which is the production of goods and services in a year, on the one hand, and the ecological footprint, on the other hand, which is the annual use of resources and the annual emission of pollutants. And it is the latter thing which is the problem. You know, it's the footprint that needs in some way or the other to be limited so that it is below the carrying capacity of the small planets. Uh, If one is then to address the footprint, which is what we did already 40 years ago in the Limits to Growth book, and where we said that the problem is that it is likely that the footprint will grow beyond the carrying capacity of the globe. Uh, if we address this first, we. the sad fact is that in the intervening 40 years, we have moved from a situation that was possibly sustainable in the 1970s. At that time, the human footprint was small enough that it could be continued for a long time on planet Earth. And until now, where the footprint is at perhaps 1.3 planets, you know, and on its way, as you said, towards two planets required, you know, in order to maintain uh, the uh, huge, the, the global population and the huge economy of the future. So we have moved into a situation where the footprint is too big. And so the question is, how in the world do we get it down again in an orderly manner? And that's my translation of all your other uh, questions. And uh, let me start by saying that my book, uh, 2052, basically says that we will not manage You know, we will not manage to do this. And consequently, we will run into uh, very serious climate problems, uh, you know, in the second half of this century. But why will we not manage? The, The reason is the following, that the human footprint consists basically of two things. It is the number of people and then multiplied by the footprint per person. So it's the number of people and it's the uh, use of resources and the emission of climate gases per person per year. And uh, it is, of course, very simple in principle to solve uh, the footprint problem because, point one, you reduce the population. That helps the problem. Or you reduce the resource use and the pollution emissions per person, which is also fully possible, if we want to, at current technologies and at reasonable costs. Uh, and uh, basically, what I'm saying in my book is that although it is possible to do both things, and both things are happening to some extent, you know, women are increasingly choosing to have fewer and fewer children, and the footprint is being reduced, you know, after all our current cars use less gasoline than the past cars, our current homes have better energy efficiency than they had in the past, etc. We are progressing, but we are not progressing fast enough. And so the total footprint will you know, not move down into sustainable territory uh, if we continue to act the way we act today. Uh, on the population side, because this is where I'm being criticized most heavily by by the audiences that I've spoken to worldwide over the last month. You know, I'm arguing very strongly that the rich countries like Norway and the United States need to go first on the population control issue. The reason for this is that our children, my children, your children, are much more dangerous than Indian children or African children. You know, my daughter's resource use and her emission of climate gases is of the order of 20 times the emissions of an Indian girl. So it is population control in the rich world which is important, you know, much, much more important than in the poor world. Luckily, you know, things are moving in the right direction in the rich world, uh, except for the United States and Norway, who happens to be the two industrialized countries that still have a certain degree of population growth. Most other rich countries are long past the point of of, uh, way below the two children per family uh, or per woman, which is necessary in order to sustain the population. And as a consequence, you know, the German population is slowly falling. The Japanese population has been falling for 15 years you know, things are happening on on the population side. And it is also happening in the poor world where, you know, people are increasingly urbanized and where poor people are poor, but they're not stupid. And when they live in a big city, they very quickly learn that having a large family is very costly. It's much, much better to only have a child because of the educational expense and the food expense and all of it. On the footprint per person uh, issue. Again, it is uh, the rich world that should lead the way. And the main problem is our use of coal, oil and gas, uh, those resources that actually generate uh, climate gases or warming gases. And What should be done is very simple to describe one or to reduce one's use of coal, oil and gas as fast as possible. And this ought to happen in the rich world, you know, before the poor world, because the rich world per capita uses, you know, again, 20 to 30 times as much of these resources and emits, you know, 20 times as much climate gases as uh, uh, a poor uh, individual does. We are in progress for 20 years since the Rio conference in 1992. We have had the UN framework condition on climate change. Every year, 192 countries get together to talk about how important it is to reduce uh, resource use and climate gas emissions per person. Uh, They don't get anywhere. Uh, They have the right goals, uh, but they don't manage to agree on ways to achieve this. So that was my long response uh, to your uh, introduction. Yes, I agree. We live on a small planet. Yes, I agree that continuing business as currently is going to to create serious problems. Uh, It is easy to do something about it in principle. We have the technologies and it is not very costly, but the problem is decision-making. We do not seem to be capable of making the right decisions, neither in the capitalist society, which is too short-term, focusing on what is profitable as opposed to what is needed, and in the democratic societies that are setting the frame conditions for business. You know, we could easily have changed, you know, for instance, put a price on climate gas emissions, which would have made it profitable for business to do those things that should be done but we never get together strongly enough and fast enough to pass those regulations. And that's where we are.
0: I appreciate those insights. I just have two more uh, areas, if you would, please, to explore. Following on the one, I also agree that we do not have leadership that first and foremost places the common good of all people and the environment at the epicenter of their decision-making process, but rather places the special interest economic um, agenda and political agenda and power agenda. And and that, I think, sooner or later, we have simply to step aside from what we're being told and look for the facts. Just one example of that on this issue. We've just said Spain is okay. Now, they're not. Nothing has changed. But far more uh, problematic than uh, Greece, excuse me, is Spain. Now Spain a, has a, had a huge, uh, huge um, uh, economic growth for almost uh, 20 years. Now we're saying we want to get Spain back to where it was. I say that's a mistake. We shouldn't get anywhere, uh, any country back to where it was, if where it was was living in a bubble. And they said, oh, it's because of public spending. So on the one hand, you had this enormous, uh, uh, you have this group of individuals who want to cut all spending on social services. So I just looked at the statistics. Spanish public debt was only 36% of its gross domestic product. In fact, it was actually an excellent example of how to be moderate in debt against gross domestic product, far better than the United States, it turns out. Spanish Spanish public debt only accounted for 18% of its total debt, and therefore we have to understand it was not public debt. That was the problem. It it was not. It was was the private sector, the banking sector, creating an artificial bubble in the real estate market that took it up and ended up with almost 175 billion euros of toxic uh, assets. That was the problem. Some say it's as high as 200 billion euros needed just to recapitalize Spanish banks. You have 800 European banks... They have borrowed enormous amounts from the European Central Bank, and and um, and none of them are solvent. So if we're going to learn a lesson about our current banking crisis around the world, I'd like you to tell us how we should separate out the real cost of our economic crisis today versus the projected cost, the perceived cost because they're telling us our costs are due to Medicare, Medicaid, public education, food stamps, the poor. And that's just not true. My second question on this is, how would you begin the process of re-educating Americans and the world to the fact that the United States, I believe will be eclipsed in the next three years by China as the economic powerhouse, because we have been dishonest about our debt you ask the average american how much is american debt 15.3 trillion no it is not it is not first your federal debt and state spending is 6.8 trillion unfunded uh, unfunded major uh, retirement systems pensions is 3 trillion your your interest on the debt is 3.8 trillion total personal debt in the united states is 16 trillion corporate debt in the united states is about 18 trillion so when you look at the gross domestic product of 15 trillion and you look at our total debt which is between 59 and 68 trillion that does not include unfunded entitlements or underfunded entitlements which can add 50 trillion now you're up Conservatively to a hundred, let's just be ultra conservative. A hundred trillion dollars. So our debt is a hundred trillion. Our assets are fifteen trillion. We have the largest percentage of discrepancy between what we uh, have coming in and what we owe at every level—personal, corporate, state, city, and federal. You add all that up, fifteen trillion doesn't even touch it, and yet we're not willing to say we're the ba- we're the bad guys. We're six hundred percent in debt and we'll never get out. Why can't we be honest and come to an agreement that we have to have a way of forgiving all this debt and start from scratch with new leadership and a new way of seeing the world? That's our final comment. If you could take your time and address that, I'd appreciate it.
1: Uh, I must start my comment by saying that I love the United States of America. I am educated at MIT. I lived for five years in your wonderful country in the early 1970s. Uh, So that's my starting point. Uh, My second point is that uh, of all the regions in the world that will do badly over the next 40 years, the U.S. is the worst. In my book, and you should actually read it, it has a long treatment of the the U.S. future. Uh, The purchasing power, you know, the income uh, in the United States will be lower in in 2050 than it is today. the Detroit auto worker who has not received a wage raise, you know, since 1990, in 2050 his son will be dreaming about the type of income that that or his son's son will dream about the type of incomes that his father's father had in 1990. The reason why I don't, and of course China is going to eclipse the United States uh, within, you know, a few years and in in 2052 will have a per capita income which is not like the united states but 70 percent of the united states so for all practical purposes the 1.3 trillion billion Uh, Chinese at that time will be a super super superpower compared to the roughly 400 million relatively poor Americans that will exist at the time. Why will this happen? So why do I spend all this time on on an introduction? It is because you are very close uh, to what I see as the root cause in your introductory remark, Uh, because this has very little to do with climate change and with resource uh, restrictions. It has to do with um, maldistribution or inequitable distribution of, of income and wealth in society or whatever you, or you call it, special interest groups. And, and uh, one high-level effect of this in the United States of America is that you are unable to make decisions you know you're not able to make good decisions, but you're not even able to make decisions because of the bipartisan you know nature of your government, which makes it particularly hard you know to to uh, or, uh, to, to to agree uh, on anything and particularly on uh, complicated issues but even elsewhere you have this problem because when you talk about debt, this should be seen as a distribution of income, as as a distributional issue rather than as a level issue. After all, the money is owed by someone to someone else. And as you rightly described in the European case, you know, the ones that win when the Greeks decide to repay their debt are, of course, the banks and the rich people that actually own the shares in the banks. And who pays? the poor, uh, the middle class and the the lower classes in in Greece. So this is actually a fight between two interest groups. And if Greece decides not to pay, very little happens, except that those people that own the debt becomes poor and the, the, the Greeks remain where they are. Uh, And the same thing is on your entitlement thing. You know, I have an entitlement to a pension in my country. You know, the only way in which that pension is going to be paid is that my children, choose to continue to pay high taxes, you know, into the state so the state can pay me the pension. Or in a private pension system, that someone actually pays it in and and, uh, it's paid out to me. I think that one of the things that will happen over the next 40 years, large scale, is that the young generation is going to look at the older generation and say, do you really think that I am going to repay your debt? I mean, you crazy father, uh, U.S. father. You know, you spent 30 years building a huge debt to the Chinese. Do you expect me to repay for your folly? And then on the entitlement side, on the pension side, you know, they're going to say the same thing. Do you really think that your pension is going to be paid? Uh, and and so, I think that we will. See, I think the And and when I phrase it in those words, one sees much more easily that this is a distributional question. It has very little to do with absolute level of debt and absolute level of GDP. These are different societal groups that have different interests. And it is amusing that people like myself who are 67 years old, so I'm just, you know, about to become a pensioner, and I'm used to, like Clinton and all my, the other people of my age, you know, that everything works out in our favor, you know, during our lifetime. And, of course, we do, you know, expect that over the next 25 years we will live long because of the health sector, and we will receive, we hope, you know, high pensions paid for by those that are younger than us and that cannot afford to live in. The type of houses that we live in, etc., etc., and the German and other European owners of the debt to Greece, you know, still lull themselves into believing that they will actually get the money back. They won't, in my mind. But it's 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 helpful that this thing is, you know, dragged over some years so that the loss someone gets used to the loss. You know, it's perhaps a little better for the whole system, that it takes some time. But it shouldn't take too much time because, of course, then, as you said, uh, those societies will collapse I- into some kind of anarchy I- instead, You know, because the middle and the lower classes will no longer accept the burden.
0: I, w- Americans take a while before we react, but I see America, middle class, working class, and poor class, collapsing into anarchy in the next five years. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see that. And and also, we have to understand the vast majority of debt in the world today is an existential artificial construct. And if we really cared about equality, we would understand it as such, but we refuse to have the power within ourselves to erase that debt, which we could do. Of but course. But I, I appreciate your insights. You've given us a very informed discussion, and, and all the best on your new project. Uh, which is absolutely essential reading for everyone. Thank you, Professor uh, Randers, for being with us today.
1: Thank you.